Yesterday was a long day for <clears throat> my wife and I. It's baseball season. Four games, a birthday party. Uh, then I took my wife to Moe's because that's preemptive Mother's Day strike. <laughs> for her, she loves Moe's. So. Uh, that worked out well. But we found ourselves in a uh, position that many of you may be familiar with. It's like 9 o'clock, and we're pulling up in the driveway, and I'm tired, and she's tired, and they're tired, and the whole car doesn't like one another. And it's late, and I got sermon on the brain, and, you know, the kids are deteriorating. And we do, we oftentimes do this. I highly recommend it. We stop the car, and everybody's, you know, chitter-chattering. We quiet the car up, and then we kind of tell it how it's going to be when we get in the house. It's like, you bath, you shower, you pick up room, you shocks in the laundry room, whatever it needs to happen, right? Kind of lay it out, and then they make counter offers. <laughs> so one will say, like, can I get my game time? No. No one, can I have a snack? And we're like, we just get, no. You know, and so you no, no, no all of their counter offers, and then reemphasize it, and then we open the door, and it never happens, right? <laughs> but it helps. It helps us get past the first wave of tired rebellion. And uh, so we're in the house, and Grace is supposed to be upstairs getting in the bathtub or something. And I look over, and she, she was at a birthday party, and she's playing with these party favors, these little erasers that look like cupcakes. And I, I just, I was like, girl, what is going on? You know, and she looks at me, and I said, you know, pick up your shoes, and I grabbed the erasers, and I said it. I said, if I see you playing with these erasers again, I didn't grab them, I just pointed them. I said, if I see you playing with these erasers again tonight, I'm going to throw them away. Now, why would I do that? Like, throw away party favors in the day of? But I said it. It just came out. Well, so she runs and grabs her shoes, but she only has about six synapses firing because it's late. And... So, you know, she grabs her shoes and she turns around, and I don't see this, but she comes back and she discovers her cupcake erasers again. And it wasn't like she was rebellious. It's just she forgot they existed, and she sees them again. So she sees them, oh, cupcake erasers. So she starts to play with them, and I turn around, and she's playing with her cupcake erasers again. And I was like, girly, what is happening? And so I grabbed them in my hand, and I said, you know, I told you that if you were going to be playing with these, I'd have to throw them away. She had her look. Sometimes we get disciplined backwards. Uh, No, I did not throw them away. But, oh, listen to that. This is an advocate. You know, but sometimes we get disciplined backwards. Like, we overspeak what we would do. Like, I never in a calmer state of mind would have levied that kind of consequence. Um, but I, sometimes we overspeak what we're going to do, and then when it comes time to discipline, it's not reasonable to go to where we said we'd go. I mean, I'm being very self, self-critical there, but I think we do this in various situations. We, we say we're going to do something that was never really reasonable in the first place, 
And then when, we, we, when the situation unfolds, we're not willing to get there. And there's, that's one reason that we don't discipline like we say we would discipline. But then there's another reason that we don't discipline those say we, the way we would discipline. And that's because the consequences, which may need to happen, are too hard so that we're not willing to do what we ought to do. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is this, this other kind of discipline, this discipline where we, it's, hard for, it's so hard for us to actually do what we're supposed to do that oftentimes it goes undone. And in this case, I'm talking about the idea of church discipline, which is about as fun to think about as it is to preach about. Uh, it's a difficult topic. I am grateful in this case that it's, uh, we're not, this is not a sermon on church discipline because we have an issue, an instance of church discipline. It's good to kind of listen and learn under the admonition of the word uh, on clear days. Um, so, but, but we are in a sermon series called Credo, which we're dealing with the marks of the church. What makes a church a church? And church discipline is one of those things. It's it, the necessity of the church to care for itself in easy ways and in hard ways is, is what makes uh, the discipline of the church so important. There are some earlier confessions of the church from the you know, middle 1500s, that time frame. And you can get all the way down to where some people thought there were only three marks of the church, and church discipline is still one of the three. That's how central this idea that we never want to talk about is actually to the Christian life. And so we're going to look, we're going to look at church discipline this morning, and I will say from the outset <clears throat> that I understand that when we say the phrase church discipline, that it, sometimes it has a sour taste in your mouth, or it, it lands heavy, or we don't like to think about it. It has a connotation of it's negative, kind of nobody wins in church discipline. Every, everybody's uh, loses, or you have the feeling like um, that it's overly punitive to the person, like there's all of this inconsistency in life, and, and then the anvil or the hammer falls on this person, or maybe you feel as though it's overly judgmental. Certainly in our age and time where it's inappropriate to become personal and less invited, sometimes it feels like and the church is going to walk into someone's life and point a finger and say, you've got to stop doing that. Those are kind of difficult concepts. And then add it on top of that, we have in our minds things like the scarlet letter or kind of the puritanical tradition of church, uh, of church discipline where we, we've seen occasions, maybe you've even experienced occasions where this was done poorly or done with malice or insensitively in another church life. And so to, just to come into this, it's already a loaded idea. And I, wanna, I want this morning to try to turn a few of these ideas on their head. I want us to stop and, if possible, uh, adjust for us um, maybe our perception of the word on how the word comes to this issue uh, because it is given to us by the Lord. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to do it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we'll be mostly this morning. So if you'll turn there, we'll get started in reading. Page 793, if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. Page 793 and... That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> this is one of the two big New Testament passages. 
that we go to uh, often to talk about church discipline. But there are more than two passages in the Bible on church discipline. If you stop and think about it, I, I did this earlier, pretty much, I was thinking about it, pretty much the entire Old Testament is about church discipline. It's that pervasive of a concept. Now, we think of it in its most formal setting of, of church discipline as excommunication, right? And that's not always talked about in that sort of way, but the Old Testament, the narrative of the Old Testament is one where the Lord is continuously excommunicating and then bringing back in, and excommunicating and bringing back in. Look at Adam and Eve. They sin. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they were forbidden to eat. And what did the Lord do? He excommunicated them from the garden. Right? Which in itself is a, is a very spiritual idea of saying, I need to remove you from my intimate fellowship and then spend the rest of the Bible bringing you back into my fellowship. Is that not what's happening through the word? Does not Revelation end one of the letters to the churches? He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and perseveres will be given the right to eat from the tree of the good good and evil, or tree of life, excuse me, they'll be brought back into the garden. There's kind of a hope of we've been excommunicated and then Christ has come down to bring us back into the union with the Lord. And this happens over and over again in the Old Testament. The idea, the cycle of judges in the book of Judges, of the people becoming wicked, the Lord kind of stepping back, allowing them to fall under judgment. They turn and they repent. The Lord seeing their repentance and coming to their rescue is a cycle at some level of a break of fellowship and then a restoration of fellowship. That cycle, the exile of the Hebrew people out of Israel, is a cycle of discipline. So we see this all through the Old Testament. But here in 1 Corinthians 5 is is one of the classic examples, New Testament examples, that's been given to us to see. So I'm going to read it, and and then we'll talk about it a little bit. I should say before we start, Paul's already, this is an agitated letter. It's a letter of grave concern. So that's kind of the mood in which Paul's writing. And here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers 
were idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a swindler, a drunkard or a swindler. But such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Now that is a challenging text. I mean, it puts the issue of church discipline right up front. And I know that if you're here, if you decided for the first time in your morning to come try church anew, this is not the most popular text to place out. And I guess I would say to that person, and I don't know if you're here or not, but I would say uh, pause and just uh, listen to how the Lord deals with his, his holiness in light of his people. But there are some challenges here in the text. And the first one, unfortunately, in my mind, comes not from the biblical text itself, but from the translators. It comes from the title. If you're using an NIV Bible, and other translations have different titles, so I don't really want to pick on them in general, but the NIV, the title says, quote, expel the immoral brother, exclamation point. That's the title in the New International Version, which for me is problematic because for one, um, who's being yelled at uh, in the text? Because when I see expel the immoral brother, I, I think, and maybe it's just because of my prior inclination towards the idea of church discipline or all the connotations that I have, this is how I kind of read that quotation. I see it as expel the immoral brother. That's how it sounds when I, when I look at that. Expel the immoral brother. It's got this, oh, the evilness of the brother. But is that what Paul's dealing with in the text? Is, is, is this text at all? Is this really about the immoral brother? Is that what it's about? No. Granted, the brother is immoral, but for Paul, it's, it's almost, that's almost an open and shut case for him. The amount of immorality that this person's practicing within the fellowship of believers is such a no-brainer for Paul. I mean, for him, he's like, I can't believe he would do that if he was in Corinthians. I cannot believe that I even have to say this to you. But what Paul's really admonishing here is not the immoral brother, but the church that is accommodating him. That's what this text is about. The text is about the church, not, not the man. The text is, he's writing this text to this church because the problem that's really here is not that it's a bunch of uh, kind of sheepy saints who have been hijacked by the immoral brother. That's not what's happening here. What's really happening here is that this, there's a church that has become very proud of its spirit of tolerance. It's tolerating blatant immoral behavior within its community. That is the problem in the text. That's what the exclamation point is directed at. It's directed at the church. How can you have allowed this to happen? Is Paul's kind of mood in this text. Look at, look at the first, second verse. The second verse says, And you are proud. 
You're proud. If we could like put it into words that would be phrases that would be very understandable today, this you might think would be a church that's tempted to celebrate a spirit of tolerance over and above that of the truth of God. They would brandish and advertise the fact that they make no judgment on anyone's person so as to receive people into their community. But once they're in their community, they would be a group of people who would have no inclination or knowledge of their need of the grace of Jesus Christ because they've been received with open arms of toleration, which is not how we come to the Father. We come to the Father out of need for mercy and then are received. But this church has got it backwards. They've become proud and arrogant that in their freedom in Jesus Christ, people can do whatever they want to do. It says that even again in the sixth verse, it says your boasting is not good. And I, I want us to, to pause here. I, I want to say, say this in, um, in a way that's helpful, both in the life of the church and maybe even in your family or other relationships. But I would say this. Most often, discipline does not take place in relationships, not because you love them so much, but because you don't love them enough. Did you hear that? Very often, when we know somewhere deep in the back of your mind, in whatever relationship it is, whether it's a church or family, the principles are the same, okay? Principles are the same. That you're not disciplining Not very often, not because you love them so much that you can't do a hard thing, but because you don't love them enough to do the hard thing. Or here's a a different way of thinking of the same idea. It may be, you may say to me, honest, John, I do love them. I would say, well, then another reason that we don't discipline the way we ought to is because we don't love and believe in the truth of God enough to love them well. So you're loving them poorly. I'm here to say, if you love God's truth and you put his word first and you bow to his throne only, you will love the people who you love better than you are right now. Without the word of God, you try to love, you could pour all of your life into this person trying to love them, or you could love the Lord and you would still love that person better. This is why we don't discipline or why we don't discipline well. It's because we either don't love the people we say we love as much as we think we do, or because we don't know how to love them well because we don't take the Lord seriously at his own word. In this case, I think it's a combination of both, right? Certainly in our lives, it's a combination of both. And with that said, let's continue to look at the text here. I want us to look, what is the attitude... Speaking of love and loving well, is the attitude of Paul one of love or lack of love for the man in question? I mean, the man who's obviously the immoral brother, who's obviously deeply embedded in his wickedness and sin and all of this is happening. He's doing something, in fact, that the pagan world wouldn't even do. That's the world outside of the church in Corinth, which in Corinth is saying a lot. Corinth is Vegas of the ancient times. So he's saying even... Sin City looks at what you're doing and goes, that's racy. Now, is Paul's, is Paul's perception of the man here one of just get rid of him? Cut the dead wood. 
Like if this is the body of Christ, is the man the appendix? Just cut it out. Is that the, what he's saying? No. Look at his spirit. Look at the spirit of Paul. Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan. I agree that sounds drastic. Why? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's intention and the Lord's intention is not the destruction of the man, but the salvation of the man. You see, when we talk about church discipline, if we're going to talk about it well, okay, I'm sure there are aberrant versions of church discipline, but if we're going to talk about godly church discipline, we need to know from the beginning that it is positive, not negative, in the life of the church. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we go through it smiling. It should be heavy and hard, but it is positive. It's it's trying to restore and defend both the man and the church. It's protecting of both. This isn't a sort of situation where, where in order to save the church, the Lord is willing to give us a teaching that abandons the human. But no, just the other way around. What he's saying is this, place the man outside of the grace of the community so that the natural consequences of his sin might be felt in his own life. Stop enabling the person. Is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you are placing an umbrella of grace over something that should be out in the open. He should suffer the loneliness of not having the body around him, not having the affirmation of his behavior, all of these sorts of things. Remove him from that and so that he might, in fact, deal with the truth of his sin and return to the Lord. And I would say there is, a church is not disciplining well if the re-entry door is not well seen for the person. Like we, we would not be disciplining well as a church if we, if we dealt with somebody in such a way that that person could never see a way back into the fellowship. When we discipline, we may have to do something hard, but the purpose is so that person might come back to the Lord and receive his grace. This is tough love. That's the phrase we use today. This is tough love. And this has to shape our mood and our mind about church discipline if we're thinking, what is it actually? This is a positive form of discipline designed to restore someone who's falling away from the faith. The question I guess I would ask you is, do you believe that God, and believe in the Lord's word? Do you believe in it enough that it would take you to a, this very hard place? Do you believe that, that in the truth of the scriptures enough, in the truth of God teaching enough, that you would in fact fight for it in a situation where you see blatant disregard within the community of believers? Because the reality is, is you're going to see it when it's manageable. By the time I see it, It's rotten. Let's notice the second thing. <clears throat> if you look here, you'll see that the, the discipline or the call to discipline is not simply about the man and his sin. It is about, the concern that Paul has is about the relation of the man and his sin to the rest of the church. Look in verse 6. 
your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Paul's implication here is that man's sin today is a church sin tomorrow. That's what he's saying. He's saying allowing that to happen there unchecked today is going to happen among the lives of your children tomorrow. The church, sin is seen not simply as an individual issue, but as an issue within the church, within the life of the church. Sin is seen as something that's taking place in relationship to the other people around. So it isn't simply what this man is doing that that Paul has some alarm on. It's the reflection of the church on what this man is doing and the refusal to do anything. That's what that Paul's drawing to is, is this idea that this yeast will infect the whole batch of dough. In other words, Paul is saying there is a viral nature about the course of sin within the life of the church that is not cut out. It will destroy the church. It will become a false loaf of bread, so to speak. Right? I mean, he uses Passover language. So he's using language where the bread is an unleavened bread, and he's saying, why are you leavening the bread? Why are you making it something that it should not be? We had a family friend. Uh, no, when I was a boy, he was my father's age. And he was in a prominent, not high, but a prominent spot in the Air Force during the first Gulf War in 1991. He was there, he was part of the brain trust that established the main strategic air battle plan, which was fabulously successful. And uh, so following the conflict, he was invited to speak at a number of places. They weren't, you know, because he was there at the formulation. And one place he was invited to speak at was an annual meeting of uh, Navy aviators. It was a, a symposium. And he told me, or my family, I can't remember the context of the conversation, but he had mentioned that he had declined the invitation. And he had declined the invitation because that symposium had gained a reputation for sexual immorality. It it had a rap in the military of a place where wild things occur. Turns out that he had avoided the tail hook of 1991. He would have been, in fact, the only Air Force officer there, which would not have gone well for him. But if you, many of you remember, at least my age and older, remember Tailhook when it hit. It was this uh, instance in, in Las Vegas when th- 300 aviators ended up having their careers shaped because of a lot of sexual misbehavior that had taken place. What I'm here to say is that culture does not happen overnight. Things like that evolve and they evolve because they're allowed to evolve. Listen, I know, I, I, whether it's a play group you're in, or whether you're the boss of a business, or your work group, whatever group it is, when sin enters into that group, if it's not checked, both in and outside of the church, the, what we can do about it has a lot more to do with inside the faith, but the reality is the same. If you have a boss who promotes a certain kind of aberrant behavior, the people who works underneath the boss will begin very often to reflect that same kind of aberration. That sin infects the culture. And Paul's saying this. He's saying this about the church. He's saying, you are running the risk of undermining the very church itself by not dealing with this person. 
Do you believe that your toleration of a brother's sinful behavior reflects directly upon your life and the lives of those around you? Where's, where where we often have a pause here. This is very hard to do, and, and I want to I save enough time to offer some practical ways. Matthew 18 is the other passage, if you're taking notes. I would encourage, Matthew 18 talks more to methodology. And we don't have time to read that this morning, but I would, I would encourage you to go there. If you're wondering, well, how would it look? But I'll, I'll try to save a few minutes to talk about that. But to this issue of judgment, you know, sometimes we get gun-shy right at the last second because who are we to judge? Paul is clear here, as is the word. It is not we who judge. It is the word of God that judges. We are entrusted and we take care of the word of God. We're the caretakers of the word. And so it is the word of God that convicts and commends and admonishes and teaches, right? All of, all of God's scriptures, God breathed and is suitable for teaching and rebuking. They're both good. Paul's not calling us to point a finger at the world and say, the world's all messed up. Paul says, well, the world is the world. But the church, the brethren, the community of believers, they are under a different covenant. We, the church, have taken the blood of Christ. We, the church, have partaken in the broken body of Christ. We, the church, have the Holy Spirit in us. We, the church, are called individually and corporately to live holy lives before the throne of God, right? For us, if the, if the world wants to live evilly, if that's a word, they can without being hypocritical. The church cannot do that or it is hypocritical. This is, an, this is a, an endeavor, church discipline, for the community of believers, and we're given the license to judge based on the word of God. It needs to be done well. It needs to be done with care, but it is our responsibility. So let me close with how, how, would this, how might this look? First of all, I think, very practically, church discipline is best understood when it's placed on a continuum of discipleship. So it isn't like we do nothing with the person until all of a sudden they are sleeping with their father's wife. But really, do you think that happened overnight? No, it didn't happen overnight. These things, this is slow fade into this sort of behavior. And so as a church, we respond to these things in all sorts of ways. Formal church discipline is the most extreme. It's discipleship within the kind of the crucible of the church. But it's an expression of an idea that reaches way back, way from the formal all the way into the informal idea of Christian friendship. So you as two Christians meeting for lunch may do more good in ever preventing anything like this happening Merely by growing in Christian friendship. Brotherly love, discipleship, mentorship, call it what you will. All of that idea is the great preventive medicine to this sort of difficult situation. And what I mean is you, something happens. Pick an pick a, a extreme example. You're out for lunch. You see a friend of yours in the church come in for lunch with a woman that you don't know and you know his woman. So you meet him for coffee, right? And you say, got a question for you. Like, this is what I saw. 
But the reason we don't do that, remember, is because we either A, don't love him enough or her, his wife enough, or B, we don't love God's word enough to know how to love him well. You meet, you sit down, you say, just work this out for me. Tell me the story. You're hoping he says, yeah, she's my sister, right? From San Diego. Yes, because then you get credit from God and it's easy. Trust me, the first time you do it, it'll be that way. Go in peace. Right? But maybe, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, you hear it, right? You hear it behind the language. Well, you know, she's a co-worker, you know, we both had a break. And that kind of happens. And then you as a friend begin to engage a little bit, right? Do a lot of listening. If, if you're like literally taking notes, if you have one of these meetings, listen the first time. And ask a few questions. Right? In, the, in, in Matthew 18 it says, approach them one-on-one and ask. Don't think like I have one one-on-one meeting and then I have a two-on-two meeting, and then they're before the church on the third meeting. Like within a week, we've totally extricated this human being from the church. It's not like that. Allow that to set a gentle trajectory where it says, I am willing to bring this before the body. This is serious because God's word is serious. But now, let my love for this person overwhelm the situation. You meet and you listen. You ask a few questions because what are you trying to do? As a believer, you're trying to figure out, is this a sin that's occurring because the person doesn't understand the countenance of the Lord? Or is this a sin occurring because the person's heart is become hardened before the Lord? What's the nature of the sin? Is the person simply very lonely right now? Is this something that we, we can rapidly come, like rush to and do triage for? Or is this truly a discipline? You listen, you listen, you listen, you listen, you find out, let's just say that there really is a problem. Well, then you say, you know, hey, can we meet again? And then you, next time you meet, you argue from the word. Place God's word on the table. Uh, Maybe not literally, but at least in an idea. Place his word on the table and make the person respond to the truth of God. Not how you feel. Not what you think. Take the teachings of God's word and put them there. And then you can be calling into conviction. How do you do this? How do you do this in light of the word, right? He will contradict himself. God's word is perfect. His truth is holistic. It is incontrovertible and it is absolutely wonderful. And that person will place themselves in a bind and then you'll see the reaction. Is the reaction one that's towards repentance or is the action the one that's away from the Lord entirely? And then you begin to progress from there. Maybe you bring a friend. Maybe you go down the path and Matthew 18 is instructive for that. But you go down that path but start very practically from a heart of I love this person but I am willing to do whatever it takes to preserve the purity of God's church. After all, is that not what God has done for us? Were we not excommunicated from the garden? Were we not excommunicated from eternal life? Were we not excommunicated from the fellowship of God? And did not the Lord do the most extreme things to bring us back into fellowship? Did he not send his son? Did his son not die on the cross? Did his son not shed his own blood? Did his son not bear our sins and God's wrath on our behalf so that we might come into union? But is God not willing to judge all of those who reject him unto eternal punishment? It is a place of abounding love and commitment to justice. That's what church discipline is.